So the title for this evening's talk is Arising. By arising, I mean whatever it is that arises in our mind, and we could say in the screen of our minds. Right now, or rather for the last few hours, what's been arising in our experience has been this community, this retreat that has begin to coalesce. So let's look at that. We've come from various places around the Hudson Valley and all the way down to New York City and even New Jersey. Wow. And um, we've uh, merged into some sort of uh, community hasn't yet coalesced very well but there's some movement in that direction for, for many of us this is not the, the usual way we deal with each other right I mean we come from a culture where the things that prevail our property and territory and boundaries and personal integrity things that uh, delimit the individual which is understandable because we grow up in a culture of individualism. So much so that, in fact, it's the, the, the idea has developed that this ego-centeredness of us is part of what we call human nature. Hmm? human nature now I, when I look inside I can find that and even at times that I've had the privilege of looking into communities that have not been so uh, permeated by what we can call the western culture this individualism is not the, the, the main element of such communities. In fact, we can go some 500 years back and this is what Christopher Columbus was saying about the natives that he ran into in his 
first voyage. He says, Nor have I been able to learn whether they, the natives, held personal property, for it seemed to be that whatever one had, they all took shares of. They are so ingenious and free with all they have that no one would believe it who has not seen it. Of anything they possess, if it be asked of them, they'll never say no. On the contrary, they invite you to share it and show as much love as if their hearts went with it. So, Mr. Columbus was really astounded. And in a way, probably, many of us are. I I thought it was remarkable. Two thousand years before Columbus, our dear friend the Buddha was holding this conversation with his closest associate, Ananda. The venerable Ananda, says the scriptures, approached the blessed one, the blessed blessed one, that's uh, the Buddha. Having approached, he paid homage to the blessed one, sat down to one side and said to him, Venerable sir, this is half of the holy life, that is, good friendship, good companionship, and good comradeship. The Buddha replies, Not so, Ananda, not so, Ananda. This is the entire holy life, Ananda, that is, good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship. Eight hundred years after this conversation between Ananda and the Buddha, the Indian philosopher Nagarjuna put the matter of community in the following words. Without one, there are not many. Without many, one is not possible. I repeat, without one, there are not many. Without many, one is not possible. And in our days, a very eminent Buddhist teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, has coined a word that many of you probably have heard, which is interbeing. Not to be, but to interbe. A word that encapsulates Nagarjuna's understanding. So here we are, or should I say, 
where we enter are letting that sense of community gradually come into our being. Still, for most of us, there's a going back and forth from that sense of community which touches us, no, no doubt, many of us, if not all of us, to our habits of territoriality and so on, and, you know. In, in crowded halls like the ones that we have in Sogarty, you know, there often there's issues of territoriality about when Sabutan come up. <laughs> they don't explode in big battles, but uh, people share that. <laughs> Here there's still plenty of room, so... So, but you, you'll recognize that there is that sense as well of boundaries, territory, etc., separation. And, and there are times when people in retreats will, will share that they feel so isolated. Yeah, sure. Because the way we communicate, we break isolation is through words, and here there's silence. And, and because the sense of community hasn't fully developed, sometimes it's not felt. So anyway, to bridge the individuality into the community, it's helpful to follow some precepts and those of you who come to these retreats have probably heard about the five basic precepts that help us uh, smooth the development of community. One basic precept has to do with silence, of course. It's what uh, helps us connect deeply and there are the times when we do speak, like in groups, in the inquiry or in interviews. And when we speak, it's uh, very important that we speak truthfully and appropriately. So that's uh, what's called right speech. Be silent when it's appropriate to be silent, which is for you very often, very much of the time in this retreat. And when you speak, speak from the heart, and speak as truthfully as we can. The other precepts are no stealing. Again, respecting the sense of property that is prevalent in our lives and, uh, and respecting the needs of the other. No Killing, which of course uh, refers primarily of not killing insects uh, or animals that come our way. Um, right sexual conduct, which in the context of this retreat means uh, 
no sexual activity, just as we have silence of words, not meaning that there's anything wrong with speaking, but we speak when it's appropriate, and we, and sexual activity again is limited to situations where it's appropriate, and that's not appropriate during the retreat. And finally, not taking any intoxicants. No alcohol, no drugs, obviously. So, let me go back to this business of how the community originates. This, I was referring to that shift from the individually based world to the community based world. And for most of us, this is not a very difficult thing to do. We allow for communities to develop slowly, gradually, uh, in not perfectly defined ways. After all, in our lives, we have, a, most of us, have had an experience of community within our families. And there's a f- flexibility here, and, uh, and changes in relationship here. Having children who are now parents and grandchildren, I, it's very clear to me how this being in and out of of the community, of the family, a community with the parents or with the children or with the grandchildren, it's a part of development. In other words, arisings and passing aways are par for the course. There is, however, one arising that can has many problematic aspects for us. And I'm talking about the arising of ourselves. How and where do we arise? And of course, we're very reluctant to pass away. I'll talk about that. On Sunday, very reluctant to pass away. You know, it's funny, it's really incredible how we construct our arising, our birth. Having been a biologist, I've puzzled about this for a while. Some of you who've studied biology may be familiar with the fact that in plants, botanists, after some struggle, I must say, uh, some hundred years ago, finally agreed that a plant results from the merging of two individuals. 
One, the pollen, and the other, the egg. Botanists have no problem nowadays, for the last hundred years, have no problem allowing for individual individuality, individual being to the egg and the pollen that combine to make a plant. And they have good reasons for that, good technical reasons for that. I will not go into go into that. But can you imagine yourself assuming that the other result of the merging of two tiny little sentient beings, egg and sperm? And that therefore, of course, you know, there's total continuity. We're not creating out of nowhere. We're created out of fusion of two other beings. Forget it. Forget it. The Supreme Court would go into a fit, really. In fact, our minds are set in insisting that we arose all at once. We arose from scratch. Yeah, we have chromosomes from our mother, from our father, but we, I, arose just like that. It's a funny thing, you know. The way we frame our world, the way we frame our lives. Of course, this could be discussed forever in technical and scientific language, concepts. But if we really want to solve this quandary, we have to investigate not so much what's out there, the egg, the sperm, the pollen, the plant egg, whatever, but we really have to investigate what's in here in our minds. And that's what we do through the practice. So what is it that we do in the practice? As I anticipated in the instructions and you probably went over in the sitting. 
We invite the pra- in the practice, we invite the mind to fix itself on an object. The, the first result is that the object becomes fixed. Provide us with a pillar of stability, which always feels very comfortable. Times our conceptual mind tries to kick in. Oh, more than times, very often tries to kick in. We hear sound, we try to interpret it immediately. Or we try to develop a judgment about I like it, I don't like it. And so we fabricate an I, a sense of self around this because the self comes from I like it, I don't like it. But the important thing is that as this is happening, mindfulness keeps kicking in and noticing that that's happening. Gradually, with the practice, we begin to get in touch with a larger context of experience. Namely, with the experience of being aware. Not with the experience of what we are aware of, but with the experience of being aware. Now, those of you who have come to my talks perhaps know that I'm very fond of show and tell. So let me see whether I can do a little bit of show and tell around this. I'm going to base it on on a film I saw a week or so ago. It's an old film. It's an PBS, one of the few channels we have on the TV, PBS channel from Long Island. The film is called Marvin's Room, and it has Diane Keaton and uh, Meryl Streep, or Streep, I forgot, Streep? Streep, okay. And um, there were two sisters, and uh, the father is dying, and Father is called Marvin. I don't know the name of the actor. And I was fascinated when Diane Keaton, whatever her character is, goes to her father's room, Marvin's room. Who he has Alzheimer or is not very present. And she starts playing a beautiful, engaging 
game so simple that's hard to understand. And they both get, both the father and the daughter, get this, this joy, this laughter. They explode in a subdued laughter by, by seeing what happens. And let, me, let me just do the same thing that Diane was doing. I'm going to use the light and a little mirror I stole from Raquel. And, and see, I, I don't know why it's so extraordinary for them. And so they shine the light in various objects. Uh, it's, it's better than that. I, I, I mean, my light is not very condensed. It just makes things alive. Turn that thing alive, and then this alive, and and there's such a joy in that, and I can get it to that. Hey, yeah. just you know, the Buddha was making gestures to that, not getting it too good, but it's even better that I don't get it too good. So. You know, just just the joy of being able to fix attention in an object, see it arise and fade away, arise and fade away. Of course, it's better done in a dark room, you know, I don't have conditions right. Now, the next step in the practice, which, which Diane Keaton could not or did not try to do with her father, with Marvin, is one that we do go into in the practice. And it's far more significant than the one I've just uh, demonstrated. And again, I don't have the ideal conditions to demonstrate it, but it's like if there was no wall in the back of this hall, and if I take the mirror and shine it, well, yeah, it does reflect a little bit. But suppose that there is no wall. And so the, the light goes out and hits nothing. Shines onto nothing. There is no arising. As I said, because the back of the hall gets a little light from my, this mirror, actually, uh, I cannot demonstrate this. I'd have to tear down the back of the hall, I think. Uh, uh, Rob and others would object 
to that. So, this much I cannot do show and tell with. But what matters is the show and tell that we do inside ourselves. When at times we shine our awareness on the breath, on, on the sounds, on the sensations in the body, on the feelings, even on thoughts, quite possibly. But the one thing that we can do in that inner show and tell are that something to behold is to shine our awareness on awareness. To become aware of being aware. To let the arisings arise from the ground of experience. And instead of chasing after what arises, cultivating an interest in the awareness itself, in the light itself, in our capacity to know and reveal, which is not different, not different at all from our capacity to love and equally mysterious. Let's sit for a couple of minutes in silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.